Morning. Uh, you're going to need your Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 15, uh, so you will want to have a Bible uh, accessible. If you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, not too far away. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 15. I ran into Joe Malin this morning, and uh, I saw that SBS is in Genesis 12 to 50, and I'm glad I'm getting this in before they get to Genesis 15, uh, so that there's not too much redundant material for them. But I'd like to pray uh, before we start, and uh, then we'll get to work. So let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have preserved it throughout history, uh, and not only preserved it, but given us access to translations in language that we can understand. Uh, God, we take that for granted. We, uh, we ignore the real privilege that we have to engage your word and to understand who you are. And God, this morning I pray that as we engage, uh, you might show us some of your character, that uh, we might see who you are, that we might be convicted to live more faithfully as image bearers. And as we look uh, at Abram and, and his interaction with you, God, help us not only to understand, but to be diligent in looking at what your word has revealed and how it uh, presses in on our own lives and on our own experience. Uh, we know that it's not a dead letter, it's not an artifact of history, but it is living and active and has the power uh, even now through your spirit to, to transform us. Uh, bless this time together. Amen. Uh, if you look in the bulletin, uh, there's an insert in there, and I, I say this every time, I preach. My reason for doing this is there's just always too much to say, and there are some passages on here that I'll address and others that I won't. My goal in any preaching, teaching, or anything is to get people to engage the Bible for themselves. Uh, it's not enough to have secondhand information from another person. That's a great blessing. Uh, we're thankful for our teachers, uh, those who who teach us what scripture means. But at the same time, it's, it's insufficient for a relationship with God. Uh, I love my wife, um, and most of that interaction, or most of that uh, love and affection is based on firsthand interaction with her. It would be subpar for me to come to you and say, boy, I love Cynthia, because what Jeremiah told me about her uh, is just awesome, and the way that Amanda tells me about Cynthia, like, she's just awesome. I've never actually spoken with her myself, but I hear from others that, that she's wonderful. It's not different in a relationship with God. The more firsthand engagement you have with the text, um, I think the better off we all are. Right? God wants us to engage him. He wants us in relationship with him, not living vicariously through other people. So if you want to keep that, it's printed on a half sheet, so you can just stick it right in your Bible and come back to passages if you like to. Um, or if there's anything that I've been unclear about and you want to come afterward and say, boy, you know, you put Genesis 15, 9 to 11 here. I wasn't quite sure what you were talking about there. I'm not offended uh, by that. Um, part of my job, I realize in speaking to, to this many people, I spend most of my time uh, as a teacher and work in the church, communicating ideas to people, and I know that those don't always come across uh, with clarity. Everybody here is in a different place, so I'm fine to have you come up to me afterward and say, boy, what, were you, what was that all about? Um, I'm, I'm really okay with that. So we're going to start off a little bit different this morning. I hope you'll uh, indulge me. I'm not going to make you switch seats. I know that uh, that, would, that would rock you. Um, I do want to thank the, uh, the west side of the church here for welcoming my family as refugees, as Cynthia has, has needed to be closer to the piano. They've been very affirming and welcoming. It's a whole different experience of worship over here, but they've, they've been welcoming uh, me and, and haven't. But I'm not going to make you change seats. You just stay right where you are. But I am going to uh, have us read Genesis 15 together. Now, we could do this in one of two ways. 
One is if there's a brave soul out there who would like to read it aloud to everybody, you're more than willing, if you're willing to do that, you can do that. I would urge you to go to verse 21, and there's one of those long lists of names that are really hard to pronounce. But if anybody feels compelled to do that, uh, we, we certainly want to do that. Or I'm going to have you uh, read it independently, silently. Okay, so is there any, anybody who Rebecca Reif would like to read it aloud? Would you like a microphone? I don't need you to do anything. You're the one reading it. All right, so Rebecca's going to read. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you now, I, I'm going to call some of you out right now. I see that some people don't have Bibles in front of them. So the whole purpose is for us to see the text yourself. So go ahead and pull that out and look at it. We're going to project, project some verses up onto the screen. I want you looking at it yourself. Because I could say any crackpot thing I want up here, uh, and unless you're checking it in the Bible for yourself, um, you, you might be lost. So, without further ado, Rebecca is going to read. Oh, wait, stop, one second. Forgot to say. As we're reading this, I want you to consider four questions, okay? What we do with our kids in our own Bible reading time is we're trying to model for them what are the questions that we want to be asking. Uh, because the Bible is a complex book, uh, anybody who says it's simple is lying. Uh, it's difficult to understand. Uh, it's diverse. There are images that we don't use. Uh, it, it can be difficult to understand, and I, I do understand that. So you want to ask, you want to learn to ask uh, the right questions. So in this case, this might, oh, look at that. First of all, what's happening? No observation is too simple, right? You, you just, you start with the very basic things, and that might help get you into the more complicated stuff. Because there's tons of things that we can understand. We just always rush right for the things that are, are difficult or impossible. Uh, but go ahead and just start with a basic, this is what's happening in the passage. So I'm going to ask you what's happening. Second, <clears throat> and I don't mean to offend anybody here, you need to ask what's strange, right? God does that sometimes. There are some things in there that are like, wait, What? <laughs> If you've not asked those questions, I think God puts them in there deliberately because things happen in a way that you might not otherwise expect. And the more you read the Bible, the more you sort of expect God to act in a certain way, and sometimes he doesn't. So there's some things you look at and you say, boy, that's, that's weird. And I don't think that God's offended by that. Uh, if he is, you can just claim that it was me that told you to ask that question, and I will bear the weight of everybody's punishment on that. But you just ask, what's weird? Uh, what's strange? Third, what does it say about God? What does it say about his character? Um, because we want to be faithful image bearers. Human beings are the only thing in God's creation that bear his image. Uh, we are unique in that regard. And the reason we want to understand God's character is because we want to be faithful image bearers. We want to look like God in the way that Genesis 1 and 2 describe. And then finally, what does it say about the Christian life? And I put Christian in quotes because there's just so many clever people among you that would point out the fact that Abram is not, strictly speaking, a Christian. But what does it say about the life of faith? What does this passage say about the life of faith? And in our case, it would be the Christian life. Okay? Everybody feeling okay? Anybody nervous? All right, you guys are going to make it. We'll see you on the other side of Rebecca's reading, and then we'll get to it. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldean. To give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer. 
descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation that serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, but the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Camonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, um, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Woo! Nice! Let's give it up for Rebecca. You sort of slug through those last, like, oh, the Girgashites, the, oh, yeah, she did it. Nice work. Um, and what you always want to do is just say it with confidence, because none of us really know how to pronounce it. So you just say it confidently and fast, and then just, just move right on. So anyway, good. I'm going to skip over the first question. Oh, how do I go back? Previous slide. Oh, something's happening. I'm on, like, the ninth slide. I hit previous slide. But it, yeah, perfect. All right. So what's happening is fairly obvious that God and Abram are making a covenant together. They're entering into dialogue. So I'm going to skip over that one. But I am going to ask if anybody has any compelling, like, what's strange or what strikes you as kind of odd? Excellent. Right. Because you look at that and you say, boy, that's weird. When I closed on my house, there wasn't anything like that that happened, right? <laughs> they had to cut the animals down the middle and we refinanced and then we had to do it again. Like, it, it's strange to us. Yeah. And, and it's okay to say that because we're living quite a distance geographically, ethnically, culturally from where this took place. It's actually common practice and we're going to talk about that, but that's an excellent, uh, excellent observation. Steve made the same one that cutting animals in half and laying them side by side seems kind of weird to us. Not how we spend Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, did you Oh, like God is sort of in some sort of physical, like, with him and, and takes him outside. Yeah, okay. Could be. Yeah. I thought that, including the fact that birds came and get chased them away. Yeah, right. Okay. Of all the things that you could include, uh, why include the chasing off of the birds? Yeah, good. So there's plenty of stuff there that anybody find it strange that there's like a flaming torch passing between the pieces. You'd expect like a person, right, or s something, but it's like fire shooting down the middle. I, I thought that, that was kind of weird. Uh, if you had to say real quickly, and we'll just have one here for the purpose of time, what does it say about God? And we're going to ask you to limit it just to one, one thing, maybe somebody who hasn't contributed yet. Unpredictable. Bold choice. I feel like I have to ask a follow-up. So oh, you mean in the sense of like this strange ceremony that, okay, yeah, all right, I could buy that. And finally, what does it say about the Christian life? What does it say about the life of faith if you had to summarize it in a word or two or a sentence? Yeah. One of the interesting things about Abram is that he doesn't ask questions a lot. He sort of does. So if you go back to Genesis 12, Abram doesn't actually say anything when God tells him to leave his home. He just does it. And Noah's the same way. right? We, we, we make all of this stuff out of their internal disposition and what were they thinking when this was happening, but the text doesn't say anything. It just <laughs> Abram trusted and he obeyed, right? That was it. Now, that being said, we're going to talk about a couple of Abram's questions. Um, and Abram's a familiar character uh, to us. So even if we're not quite sure about the particulars of his life, we know that he's a person of great faith. He's somebody that the New Testament and even the Old Testament look back to constantly as this sort of hallmark 
of biblical faith. What's interesting about this passage is it's actually the first dialogue between God and Abram. And I can't speak for you, certainly, but I find dialogue between God and human beings to be fascinating. Like, those are my favorite sections in the Bible, just because God says things that you might not otherwise expect. So in what we're going to do here, we're going to look through this dialogue, and I'm going to just limit the reflections. There's a lot of things that could be said about this passage. I'm just going to limit us to two of Abram's questions and God's response, and then I want to end with, what does this say about God? Or, to put it a different way, what kind of God are we talking about? I find in my interactions with people, and I think the last statistic I heard was that 75% of Americans still believe in God or in a higher power of sorts, which seems like a really high number to me. And I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in what kind of God are we talking about? <laughs> is it the God of a country western song? Is it, is it Hallmark God? Or is it the God of the Bible? What kind of God are we talking about? And there's something really interesting here, which is consistent with what the rest of the Bible says about God. And even in conversations with Christians, you have to wonder, like, how much of your view of God right now is based on what the Bible actually says versus, you know, things that you've heard? That's why the firsthand engagement on your part is just so important. You have to be discerning about anything, really, that people say about God. So, uh, the first bit of text that we'll look at is in 15.2, and it's Abram's question. It's his first question. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And then he says in the very next verse, you have given me no offspring. Now, verse 1 says, on, God says to Abram, uh, I will give you a great reward, or I will reward you greatly. Abram's response is, what are you, you going to give me? I have, I have no heir. The heir of my house isn't even of my house. It's Eleazar of Damascus. And he goes on to say that you have given me no offspring. So what Abram is saying, in essence, because um, it seems like there's a little bit of an edge here. Like, he, he's sort of accusing God. He doesn't say generally, I have no offspring, I have no children. That's not what he says. You have given me no offspring. So what's going on? Because any reward that the Lord gives to Abram is going to be squandered because he doesn't even have somebody of his house, right? His inheritance, whatever God decides to give him, is going to go to some stranger. So what... What could God possibly give him that would be of any value? Now, what's interesting is there's not really much said about offspring, but in almost an accident, Abram reveals, it's like there's an uprising. <laughs> the kids have turned on us, quick, to your stations. Sorry. Um, Abram reveals the depth of the burden of his heart. So he's saying, I, I don't really care what the reward is. I have no offspring. I'm, I have nobody that I can leave this to. And what I find interesting there um, is that God accepts what's heavy on Abram's heart. I think a lot of times we feel like we can't live openly before God. I think that a lot of our faith might be predicated on pretending uh, that I couldn't possibly voice that anxiety to the Lord. And that's precisely the opposite of what Abram does here. Um, he's vulnerable uh, before the Lord. He doesn't hide who he is. And it's clearly something that Abram is wrestling with. Now, is this a lack of faith on Abram's part? I don't think so. Because what's interesting is that God doesn't rebuke Abram for this. He doesn't tell, like, who are you to question me? Because there are times where God does that. <laughs> he says, oh, yeah? Uh, and and he's, he's rather harsh in his reply, um, harsh in the way that we define it. But he, he accepts this from Abram. 
And he expresses the deep longing of his heart. God, I have no, I have no offspring. This is going to be squandered. My life will be over and my line will be dead with me. What gift could you possibly give me? Now, in terms of God's response, I just love this response. And I want you to take a second to think about it. Took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. What does that call to mind, if anything? Has anyone ever looked at a particularly beautiful scene in nature and just felt really compelled to praise? Why? Right, God's handiwork. Now, I'm sure a physicist or astronomer or whatever is going to have a very different experience about looking at the stars, right? But in the ancient world and even in the world of poetry, when they write about the stars, it's just the splendor of what God has done. Now, you can explain all the gases involved, and I'm, I'm sure that's compelling on some level, and if that's your thing, I, I don't want to diss that. But what is God saying here? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Bonus points for Cynthia. Yeah, those stars up there that you're counting, I made those. Those are mine. Pretty good, huh? Oh, yeah, no, I couldn't possibly give you an offspring. (laughs) Right. So it reminds me of the joke of um, God and, and this human being were going to have a contest with each other to see who could make something better. And I've probably told this joke before, but I, I still like it. Uh, so they're going to have a creation contest. God's going to be on one side, other guy on the other side. And so the guy amasses this pile of dirt, and God says, get your own dirt. <laughs> Give it a minute. It'll settle in. God made everything, right? And it might seem trite to say that, he takes them out and he says, go ahead and count those stars. Yeah, oh, remember who made those? Yeah, I did, right? So he's pointing to himself as creator. So I think that God's appealing to his act of creation and to say that he's the only one that's capable of pulling that off. You have this improbable promise that's given to Abram that he's already pretty old at this point. Uh, so the fact that he'd have any descendant at all is is pretty unbelievable. And to say that his descendants are going to be as numerous as possible, uh, is as numerous as the stars of the heavens is, is ridiculous when you, I mean, I, I hope that's not too honest from the pulpit, but it, I, I'd have a hard time believing that, which points to a problem in my own heart. And the more that I reflected on this, I love this verse for two reasons. One Because of the ease and the comfort and the affluence that we live in, I think we're always prone to coming up with our own solutions to problems. And I I don't know um, that our first inclination is to really to put things before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that all that stuff's not good. Like, look for a good deal on your auto insurance pay your mortgage. I'd think you were kind of foolish if you stood at the end of your driveway and, and prayed for a ride to work instead of driving in the car that you purchased. Like, I'm not saying any of, of that is ridiculous. But when's the last time you interacted with a person who was describing their circumstances and your first inclination was to say, boy, can we pray about that? Like, let's, let's put this before the Lord. Um, now, there's all kinds of advice you can give, and that's great. But what if your first inclination was to put it before the Lord? And I think that's the disconnect that we live with sometimes, is we're, we're people of faith, and yet at the same time, we, we feel like God made everything and then dumped us onto the planet, and we've got to figure it out and slug it out in the trenches because God's just dependent on us. And I think what the promise points to is human beings don't manufacture anything, right? 
Or, do you think that you can change a person? Does anybody in here really believe that you have the power to change a person? And then my follow-up question would be, how's that working out? Now, it doesn't mean we don't engage diligently with people. We correct our kids because that's biblical and that's what we should do. Within the community of faith, we correct each other when we see that things are, are going awry. That's all biblical and that's all legitimate. But at the subatomic level, how many of you really think that you have the power to change a person's heart? I, I don't, and I interact with a lot of people, and if I were to tip the scales, uh, I have the power to change nobody, ultimately. So what can I do at those moments? I can choose to despair because I'm just relying on myself and my wisdom and my experience, and I, I, somehow I could find the strategy that's going to work. Or I could just continually put that person before the Lord and recognize that God alone is the one who can change that person, and I can't. So I love passages like this that show that we can't change anything. We don't really control a whole lot. We have to put these things before the Lord. As we were talking yesterday at Iron Sharpens Iron, I'm, I was thrilled at the, the main speaker um, who kept saying, how do you develop some momentum so that the conference doesn't stay at the conference. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. And all the men who are there and, and wives and everybody associated with it, as you think about the needs of our church, one of them has to be that you would pray that there would be real momentum from that. Right? Everybody yesterday attested to something that resonated with them, some part of their experience that they just thought, boy, that's really something that, that I need to put before the Lord. That's something that really hit me. Um, and we need to be praying uh, that God is just going to help those things to flourish and really to change us. And second, what I really, uh, the second thing I love about this verse is that God pulls beauty from the ashes, and he's the only one who can do it. You look at Abram's circumstances, you look at his bitterness, his disappointment, because, I mean, you can... You can imagine if that's the longing of his heart. Um, God alone has to pull beauty from those ashes. There's not going to be a single strategy. There's no guru that Abram can go to. There's not going to be an Iron Sharpens Iron conference for Abram so he can go to the breakout session of how to deal with disappointment. There's none of that, right? He has to rely on the Lord. And does God keep his promise? Yes, he does. Now, does Abram ever see the fulfillment of the promise? Does Abram ever see the fulfillment of the promise? No. Does he see the beginning of it? Yeah. And can you, based on that... Can Abram infer that God's going to keep his promise? Absolutely. But the text plainly says that land promise, yeah, that's not going to happen for another 400 years. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> You're not going to make it that long. But he has to trust the Lord that God can take this barren person out in the middle of nowhere and that God can make him the paradigm of faith in the New Testament. We are, those of us who are here in Christ, we are the recipients of this promise. That's what the New Testament says. You are the seed of Abraham if you are in Christ. That's what Galatians says. So sitting right here, we can say absolutely God keeps his promises. And over and over again in personal circumstances, I love to hear people's testimonies about brokenness that God pulls out of the wreckage and he redeems it, and he restores it, right? That's the stuff that proves to me that God is real and that he's active because there's no human explanation for it. All the world offers is affirmation of anything that we feel like we need to do. There are whole systems set up to affirm us in our brokenness, but for God to take a relationship between father and son, mother and daughter, a marriage relationship to take that 
and pull that out of the ashes and to make it beautiful. I don't feel like I'm capable of doing that. Are we all capable of participating in that? Absolutely. Does God use us to participate in that? Absolutely. Who brings about real change? It's the Lord. So how much time do we spend reflecting on the fact that God is the maker of heaven and earth? So maybe I could find a car. Maybe if I put this before the Lord or put this anxiety before him, maybe he's capable of bringing about something because he, he did, after all, make the stars. And I, as of yet, have not done that on my workbench. I'm pretty impressed by it, frankly. I've never made anything quite as beautiful as, as you know, mountainous landscapes and, and the beauty of the Northeast. Uh, I haven't done anything that impressive, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, but I, I believe in a God who can. So how much time do we spend putting this stuff before the Lord? And I want to read this article. It's, um, now you have to put on your irony ears, right? This is not a real article, but it's pretty funny. It passes, uh, for funny in my universe at least, the title of the article. This is out of Linwood, Washington. Anybody ever been to Linwood, Washington? I don't even know if that's a real place. All right, Lynn says it is. Um, oh, Linwood, maybe, maybe that's where it comes from. The title of the article is, What Has God Ever Done For Me? Asks Man Breathing Air. Sources confirm Tuesday that local free thinker Jared Olson called into question the, quote, absurd idea that God had ever done anything for him, all while inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a complex process well beyond his mind's capability of understanding it in its entirety. The idea of God is really just holding us back, Olson opined, addressing the other members of the philosophy club at Edmonds Community College as the membrane across his larynx vibrated to modulate the flow of air from his lungs, making his speech audible to the people listening, whose intricate ear structures then instantly transform the invisible sound waves into abstract thought in their brain's nervous tissue. Olson went on to pursue the line of reasoning even further, claiming that mankind has science, medicine, and mathematics to thank for its continued existence, rather than any sort of all-powerful creator, for which there is, quote, absolutely no evidence. According to eyewitnesses, he made these claims as the surface his feet rested on continued to spin around the Earth's core without any input from him, all while the only known habitable planet on which he stood rocketed around the center of the galaxy in perfect formation at the unfathomable rate of 490,000 miles per hour. At one point during his expertly crafted speech, Olson reportedly glanced around the room to observe the nods of approval from his peers, his eyes hundreds of millions of cone and rod cells responding to stimuli in an unimaginably sophisticated procedure. As these elaborate structures continued to capture and process an unbelievable volume of input per second, Olson reported he was all the more confident from the books of those around him, or the looks, excuse me, uh, of those around him that he had proved his case. According to Olson, he plans to detail uh, religion's negative influence on society at next week's meeting, which is being held in the annex adjacent to both a Christian homeless shelter and Catholic hospital. That passes for funny in my universe only because it points to how unbelievably complex what is happening in this room right now. You're not deciding to breathe. I don't know if you're controlling your own heart rate. I, maybe that's happening. Um, but the point here is that God alone is the maker of everything. So we move on. And there's a land promise that's made to Abram. That he's going to have the land from the great river of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. And Abram asks a question again. He says, uh, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Now again, is this an expression of doubt? Uh, I don't really think so. There's plenty of times in the Bible where God confronts people who question him. And he doesn't do it in nice ways. God's not avoidant. He's not conflict avoidant. He's not like the parent who's afraid to confront their kids about negative behavior. God's not intimidated by us, apparently. I know it comes as a great shock to us. When, if you've ever read Job, Job, uh, got to defend Job a little bit because God does, but he's kind of a little bit whiny throughout. And then when God finally responds, he says, gird up your loins like a man and you answer me. 
<laughs> not typically the way we would speak to each other, but that's what God says. And he goes on for four chapters in Job to highlight the fact that he's the one who tamed Leviathan. He's the one who made the sand. He's the one who did this. He's, what do you say at that point? Job does the right thing. He repents in sackcloth and ashes. But in this case, God doesn't rebuke him. It's a pretty unbelievable thing. And he says, how can I know that I'll possess it? And this is where we get to the weird part. God and Abraham, they make a covenant with each other. And the word for make a covenant is to cut. So to answer the question, why are the animals all cut? Because that's what it means to make a covenant. You're cutting a covenant with each other. They're making a contract. Now, it's weird for modern listeners, but it's a pretty common practice in the ancient world. It's not just the Bible that attests to it. There's literature outside the, the Bible that speaks to this kind of thing. That when you make a covenant, you offer sacrifice, and you pass through between the two pieces. Has anyone, anyone familiar with this? I mean, not that you've done it yourself, but yeah, okay. Uh, right, so what are you saying when you pass between the two pieces? We're saying we're in agreement, but... That's right. What you're saying, you're calling a curse upon yourself. If I fail to abide by this covenant, may I end up like the animals that I am walking between. And for those of you that are overly concerned, that was not a bedtime story in our house. We regularly have conversations um, about these sorts of things because they're just interesting and they help us to make meaning of the Bible <laughs> and tell these horrifying stories of animals being cut in half and <laughs> God annihilating a whole people group. And then, <laughs> good night. Sleep well, buddy. Love you. Right. But at the same time, it's there. Uh, and it needs to be addressed. And I think what's really unique and interesting here is what it says about God. So this is where a careful reading has a pretty high yield. Now, there are lots of times where the Bible communicates God's love overtly, right? Can you think of any examples? Thank you, John 3.16. It's not a trick question. Like, are there any times in the Bible where God communicates his love for human beings? <laughs> Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness, which is the word that we translate love. God's abounding in these things, and it says it overtly. There's sometimes, though, because the Bible communicates on different levels, where it says exactly the same thing, but it'll say it in kind of a weird way. Now, you think that this is strange, because we don't really want to sit and think about what the Bible says. But I could say that I could go home on two separate days, and one time I could walk through the door and I could say, Cynthia, I love you. That is an overt statement of love. I've used the word. The next day, I could walk through the door with these plant-like things that I have cut from the ground and killed, and then I could hand these now dying but still lovelily colored things to my wife, and I could hand them to her. You may know these as flowers. Have I communicated love? Yes, if she's down with flowers, of course. Have I used the word? No, right? Now, if we went to another culture and we're trying to communicate the, the dead things that we cut from the ground and now that they're dying, we give them to the people that we love, that might sound a little bit bizarre to us. But no, it's a perfectly normal thing. You cut flowers, you dry them out, you keep them around. They're just nice colors and they smell good and all that stuff. And that's, that's true. Now, what's happening here is the same thing. So I don't want you to feel like I'm pulling what you believe about God off the table and telling you everything you ever believed is wrong. What I want to tell you is that this communicates God's love, but it does it in a strange way. Now I need you to turn to Jeremiah 34. I'm going to ask you to get up on your spiritual tiptoes here for a minute. There's, there's yield here, I promise. But go to Jeremiah 34, 18. 
And we'll need another brave soul just to go ahead and read it out because I have not put this on a slide for you. We will have Jeremiah read Jeremiah 34. It just seems fitting. Okay, that's a little bit of an explanation about what this is all about. So God, they had failed to live up to the covenant in terms of releasing slaves. And God's declaration of judgment is that those people who passed between the animals will become like the animals they passed between. Now, who passed between the animals at that point in what Jeremiah just read? Who passed between it? The people, right, the people passed between it, yeah. Now, go back to Genesis 15. Who or what passes between the two halves of the animal? It's a torch. There's some kind of smoking, glowy thing. What is that? It's God. Okay, now, that seems a little weird to me. Um, And if I'm outside, now, what's really interesting, just from an evangelism standpoint, when you can communicate what the Bible says in these sort of, and you say the thing that people don't expect you to say, it, it really it creates dissonance for them, and then they listen. And I, I can attest to this at work, that I have ongoing conversations about environmental issues with one of my coworkers, and he's shocked at the Bible's environmental vision, where I mean, God says, don't just wantonly cut down trees, or that God's into species preservation through, like, when you come across a nest, like, because you don't expect, at least I don't expect, evangelical Christians to communicate that. It's just all going to burn anyway, right? Well, when you, when you say what the Bible's actual vision of it is, all of a sudden he finds it interesting and wants to hear uh, all about this stuff. And we have this ongoing conversation. I actually get to talk about the book of Revelation with somebody outside the Christian faith. It's, it's just wild. And he kind of understands the images, but that's a, a beside the point. This is weird, right? And this is one of those passages, truth be told, that we just pass over and say, that's, that's weird. I'll wait for somebody to explain that, or I'll just never read it again, because uh, that's just bizarre. How would you defend that it's actually God passing between the pieces of the animal? Yes! Sorry, I'm just like, go Wayne! If you're familiar with the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, you've got all the same words here. Yeah, so that, that's a possible connection as well. Um, and we'll actually, in a minute here, talk a bit about how Jesus sort of becomes a fulfillment of this as, as, in, a, in a way. Now... If you believe in the connection between Jeremiah 34 and Genesis 15, what does it say about God? He what? Right. God seems to be calling a curse upon himself if he doesn't live up to his end of the bargain. Does that seem strange to anybody? No? It's just naturally what, what would have occurred to all of us. Uh, that the way that God gains victory is by actually dying on a cross. Like that, of course, that, that makes total sense. He's putting himself up as collateral. Right. Now, what does that say about God? Does it communicate that God is loving? Of course. Does it communicate that God is faithful? Absolutely. Is it an easy thing to get to? I mean, it's admittedly a little bit weird, but it's in the Bible, and I'm sorry, but this really resonates with the rest of what the Bible says about God and reflections on power. How does God show his power? By ordering Abraham around and telling him to do all this stuff? What if Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves? <laughs> what about 2 Corinthians, which says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God actually curses himself in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is the Bible's vision of image bearing. And I dare you to try living in that self-sacrificing, not self-exalting way and see if that doesn't make an impact. There were a lot of conversations yesterday about Ephesians 5. What does it mean to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Self-sacrifice. This is the God that we follow. It's not two different things. That God's this way, he's self-exalting up on his throne. I'm going to raise the sidewalk a little bit so they trip. Or just looking for ways that he can mess with your circumstances. I'm going to give him a bad hair day on the day of his interview. Or make him forget to shave half of his mustache. Like, whatever. You know, like, God's just up there sick and twisted messing with us. Or he's the God who actually puts himself and his reputation up as collateral. And on behalf of human beings offers to take the curse upon himself for their benefit. I'm going to leave it there. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for reflection. Um, and I, frankly, real fellowship to me is that we have conversations about these things. Um, some of you, like how many of you feel like you're, you're up over your head like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Right? That's fine. But what I want you to do is I want you to go back to Jeremiah 34, and it's as simple as looking at, boy, human beings pass through here, but in Genesis 15, it's God who passes through. That is remarkable. And I don't know if that resonates with you. I, I can't begin to account for the complexity in this room or what would resonate with you or any of that. That's God's character. And when you get down to bedrock in the Christian faith, I know that the world is a complex place. I understand that. But simple bedrock here is we follow a God who offers himself as sacrifice. So I just put a couple questions for reflection uh, at the end of that insert. In what ways am I expressing gratitude for the faithfulness of God's character? In creation? in liberation from slavery, in covenant, the fact that God makes a covenant with human beings, he's not duty-bound or obligated to do that. In what ways am I expressing gratitude for the faithfulness of God's character? You exist. I am unaware of any contract in the universe that makes that obligatory. Like, you don't have to exist. There's something when there could have been nothing. God's not obligated to create. And a lot of times, the Old and New Testament appeals to God as creator. So how much time do we spend reflecting on the faithfulness of God's character? And then to pull ourselves together, what bitter disappointment are you not expressing to God? Like Abram here is a perfect model of somebody who lives openly before the Lord, and he's oriented toward God, right? He's not whining to his friends about all that God's not doing for him. Oh, God, why'd you do this to me? Like, I'm sorry. Those questions are legitimate when you're oriented toward the Lord. And that's what Abram is here. He's faithful to the Lord. He's left everything and followed. He just won a military victory. He is living faithfully before the Lord. And if you continue to read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that when people are faithful to the Lord, he welcomes those questions. Elijah is another example. John the Baptist in Luke 7. You want to ask those questions of God? He is totally okay with that in a case where there is just faithful living. Right? He's not interested in whining. What he is interested in, you're trusting his character you're looking at your circumstances and saying, I wasn't quite sure this was how it's going to play out. I'm trying to obey you the best that I can. I'm trying to live faithfully before you. God's open to that kind of thing. But I don't think um, that he's open to the other stuff. So what bitter disappointment are we not expressing to God? What difficulty in our circumstances are we not putting before him? What are we trying to hide from him and from other people? 
And what might God do if we put those things before him as the God who is faithful in creation, who is faithful to the covenant, who keeps his promises forever? What might God do if we were to put our trust in him? Let's pray. God, again, uh, in passages like this, we're grateful that um, we can read the Bible in a language that uh, is native to us. God, there's so much that, that we wrestle with, so much we struggle to understand, so much we struggle to, to hold on to, to grasp its meaning. Uh, but God, I pray that you would meet us in our diligent pursuit of you in your word. I pray that you would encourage us by your spirit with insight, help us to understand, uh, help us to understand your character. God, give us resolve to live uh, as faithfully as you uh, were to Abram in this case. May we take on the full character as image bearers, full character of who you are, that you are, are kind and generous and loving and faithful might that be uh, the way that we're described, not only amongst our church family, but around those who don't yet know you. Amen. Let's rise and sing here over 60. <laughs>